Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's culture podcast with me, Tom Gatti, the culture editor of The New Statesman and... And I work here too. My name is Kate Mossman and I'm the arts editor. And we are sitting in the dark in the New Statesman bunker. We're literally in the dark. It's very, very dark. There's a, a tiny crack of light in the ceiling and every few seconds I go over and sort of press my iris against it to try and get it to open up so I can look at my notes. There's a strange smell as well, I think, drifting from one of the basement toilets. It's a particularly fortuitous environment to talk about uh, life in early 17th century England because that's sometimes what it resembles down here. Um, So today we are going to talk about Gunpowder, the BBC's new three-part Guy Fawkes thing. And then we're going to have a little excerpt of an interview that I conducted with the Man Booker Prize winner George Saunders last week. And of course we will have our non-aversary, the non-important anniversary of a non-important cultural item or event. A few years ago, not a rounded number of years. So, gunpowder, Kate. Did you not think this was going to be a bit more fun than it actually is? I did. It's a very... It's a kind of musketeering, swashbuckling, swords and horseplay type subject, isn't it? It's so, it's so dour. I, don't, I was thinking about how just the incredible impact that Game of Thrones has had on our minds when we're watching costume drama yeah. these days, if you could call Game of Thrones costume drama, that it's sort of completely reassembled what you expect from these things. I was expecting anachronistic naughty language and bums and tits and incest and all that kind of thing and maybe I shouldn't have been expecting that maybe you know we 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 have to be able to do things seriously but on the other end of the scale of course you've got something like Wolf Hall and you know that's an extraordinarily subtle beautifully played out piece of exquisite drama and this kind of falls somewhere in the middle doesn't it it does and initially I was very pleased with that because I thought it was going to be quite cheesy and the first episode I thought okay you know this is cool they're doing it seriously and and we're getting some hardcore torture to let us know (laughs) what the Catholics went through and put us in the mindset of of why they might be driven to to try and blow up parliament but by the end of the second episode I was I could have done with a joke or two and and Mark Gattis with his chin chin stapled to his his shoulder as is it Robert Cecil yeah the secretary the king's secretary the king's secretary was good but he wasn't quite enough uh, as a kind of caricature comic relief. Have you noticed how when the plotters, Catesby and friends, go to taverns to plot their great attack on the king, <clears throat> they don't even really have a drink. There's like maybe one flagon of ale on the table. There's no music. There's no dancing girls or anything. They're all very, very serious and very, very handsome. I can't... But also the, the funny thing is that I can't ever take Kit Harrington seriously, and I wish I could, but it's because of how beautifully he plays... Jon Snow and that kind of like sort of the sad sack element of Jon Snow, the sad sack hero, that you can't, when he says something like, I have no room in my heart for love, only hate, I just think that's not really Kit Harrington. In a way, it's a quite sort of weirdly similar character, isn't it? Sort of serious, wronged, looking for justice. You know, he's a decent actor, but the way he played this with the sort of constantly furrowed brow reminded me a bit of what our film reviewer Ryan Gilby said about Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049, which is that he looks as if he's trying to mentally divide a brunch bill seven ways the whole time. <laughs> except except 
in this this version, he's he's trying to divide the brunch bill, but he's also really angry about having to pay, you know, more than his <laughs> for someone's yeah, girlfriend yeah. that's turned up. Yeah. <laughs> also, I thought it's funny that you, this kind of from from the the off, you get this very sort of um, grand, quite stilted language. You know, men surround the house on foot and horse, and your breath is foul, sir, and that kind of thing. Oh, I loved your breath is foul, sir. Your breath I, is foul. Like, this house reeks of popery. <laughs> and then the the funny thing that I thought was a bit odd was that Guy Fawkes is almost do you not think he's like a bit of a superhero so it, it sort of seems strangely um corny and, and naff the way they introduce him that you meet him down a darkened alley you never see his face properly and he's this kind of like super super hot guy who's very mysterious and never speaks and at one point Kit Harrington goes the man says nothing and someone says that's his great strength and he's got these kind of these superhero powers and no one's quite sure what they are and I mean presumably in the third episode which you've seen and I haven't yet he does come into his own and do something but he hasn't done anything yet well I don't know whether I should reveal what happens in the third episode I mean that's the problem with the narrative isn't it you know that however much of a superhero Guy Fawkes is he's going to fail basically Mm. and actually you you want a bit more from him in the story and you don't spoiler alert you don't really get it other than he's able to withstand a lot of torture i like it when he says i change my name as often as i change my coat and now i'm john johnson john johnson yeah (laughs) like that's the best he could come up with (laughs) off the top of his head smithington um (laughs) i actually did quite like some of the writing and if you'd like some factual information about the show kate it was written by ronan bennett who is a seriously good screenwriter he's done lots of good things he, he wrote a post 9-11 show but he also wrote a, a brilliant novel called Havoc in its third year which is set not long after this period so he does know the period quite well and I like all the stuff of reeking of popery and espils instead of spies yeah. I have my espils on them <laughs> because the the other story that this is trying to tell is sort of the beginning of modern espionage basically so Cecil sets out his network of spies with a kind of pot of invisible ink um, mm. to try and suss out what the Catholics are plotting in um, in Spain and um, in the Netherlands. Googling around Ronan Bennett and this show, I, I found the Daily Mail got very upset about the torture scenes. Yeah. One of those classic Daily Mail pieces that is very upset about the torture scenes while embedding eight of the most grisly pictures of the torture scenes within the article, <laughs> which I, I, I love how they do that without shame. What they write about Ronan Bennett is... It might seem hard to understand the need for this exceptionally graphic nine-minute sequence until you realise that the writer, Northern Irish novelist Ronan Bennett, is a left-winger from a Catholic family once wrongly jailed for the murder of a policeman during an IRA bank robbery. You might not be completely amazed, by the way, to learn that Bennett is a dedicated disciple of Jeremy Corbyn and worked for him as a researcher in the 80s. Amazing. That's why he needs to pop people's joints out on camera. The left-wing Republicans love torture. I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to take from that. Because people have been talking about the torture scenes, what did you think of them? I'm not good with torture. I'm good with sort of other ridiculous forms of horror but torture I can't do so I just skipped it it's easy enough to just like click over the but also I thought it was um some strange moments that that Harrington and the lovely Liv Tyler so nice to see Liv Tyler and things they're watching one of their closest family members being sort of crushed to death and they kind of they're able to keep their their gaze and watch Mm. the whole thing and then later on he's seeing two Jewish people being burned in Spain and he's really horrified and throwing up and it just I don't know the moments like that you get this kind of incredible lift into the mindset of that era that it was actually the decent thing to do to watch a family member being put to death I just can't I can't imagine that you know that it's your duty to stand there and watch it instead of turn away it's just fascinating well what it does capture is 
how prevalent these horrific scenes would have been and and the fact that you have got this kind of jeering audience and at one point a baby is held aloft to to watch someone being hung drawn and quartered. <laughs> have you ever been in a priest hole? No. I have. Really? Yeah, there's one near near us near my parents' house in Oxborough Hall and it's kind of the thing about the National Trust House that appeals to the kids because you get to go into it. And it's amazing. I actually went into it about a year ago and I nearly didn't get out this time. And it wasn't just because of my size. It was something about the fact that my body has no muscle tone and I have no strength anymore. Whereas when I was a 10-year-old child, I could kind of leave myself back out. But this yeah. time my arms just failed me and I just kind of like flopped. But yeah, it's very small and fascinating and it has graffiti all over it, which I think is just visitors over the years rather than ancient priests. When mm. I was 10, I... I wrote a like 150 page ghost story about the idea of finding a priest down there who's wow. still alive after all these years. But they're really fascinating. So if you ever get a chance to go to Oxborough Hall's priest hole, then get in it. Can you bring in this ghost story and read it aloud in the <laughs> podcast in a future episode? Probably burnt it. Just very briefly, I thought the actor who played King James, whose name I have written down, Derek Riddell, I thought he was really good yeah. because he had a great mixture of kind of cocky kingliness and absolute deep terror mm. you see it in the third episode when Guy Fawkes is brought in front of him and he fronts up to him and then as he's dragged away you can just see in his eyes this this guy who's and I think after the plot he was absolutely terrified what was your favorite hat um the hats didn't make an impression no no but the king really did because this is a thing in these costume dramas restoration ones as well and all that kind of period that whenever you sort of switch to the court it's just a moment of fun isn't yeah. it for the first few episodes at boys. least it's fun it's boys it's the king is on the toilet you know he's having a shit you get to watch the king having a shit and then he's eating some lovely figs and he has a pie with like six mallards heads sticking out of it with their beaks still on and then he's like romping around with his young boyfriend and stuff so I think are you you see this a lot it's a bit of a kind of cliche of costume dramas but there's like a moment of light and decadence whenever you cut to the court and the guy who's causing all this horror is the guy who's having fun at the top of the tree so yeah. it's, it's always kind of quite a nice contrast yeah well gunpowder the second part goes out this saturday at 10 past nine then the third part the week after and it's all on iplayer which is a weird mm. weird decision but they've dumped it all on iPlayer. netflix style netflix style so watch or not as you please 48 hours after he'd been awarded the Man Booker Prize for Fiction, I sat down with the American writer George Saunders at an event in Foyles Bookshop in London to talk about his amazing novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. George was on fine form. He showed me um, a photo of the £50,000 check on his phone. He showed off his Abraham Lincoln socks. He was very excited to bring up a tweet from Lord saying that it was one of her favourite books and highlighting a passage that she particularly liked. So that was obviously a particularly exciting endorsement for him. We had a really good chat about the book and about Trump and how 
writing fiction can be a kind of act of resistance. We'll play you a bit of that chat now. If you haven't picked up the book yet, it's called Lincoln and the Barter. It begins with the death of Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, in 1862, and proceeds through something like 160, 166 different voices to build up a, a portrait of the ceremony, its undead residents, so there are all these ghosts, as well as a, a bigger picture of a violently divided America and the grief-stricken president at its, at its helm, Lincoln. We're going to come in here with a section where I'm asking him about... The novel has a very unusual structure, so it's made up of, in sort of dialogue form, with, for, with voices of the ghost, but it also has embedded within it lots of quotations that appear to be from genuine historical texts. So in my rather convoluted question that, that you're about to hear, that's what I'm asking him about. I've read the book twice, and, and the first time I, like a mug, took all the historical uh, quotations as, as fact. And then, of course, I heard you say that you'd made a lot of them up, and then I read it again, and it, um, uh, it didn't lessen my enjoyment of it at all, but it did, it did slightly change the way I, I thought about it. Um, was that decision to invent uh, driven by a kind of necessity of the story, or was it... Um, an, an enjoyment of playing with the form? Or? That second. For me, the, almost the, the second answer is right. the answer to almost everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because what I, when I was first writing, I was a working class background, and I had the notion, as many young writers do, that you have to decide everything. And you have to know for reasons that are very smart. You know, mm. And then you pull up the manure truck of your ideas and say, dear reader, you know, drop it right on them. Uh, and that's how you're a smart writer. And I wrote a lot of stupid books, including that Mexico one, on that theory. So I had a kind of a critical breakthrough at one crisis point where I just thought, oh yeah, that's not it. It's actually the same energy you use uh, in a classroom when you're trying to crack a joke or when you're on a date with somebody and you're trying to charm them. It's very uh, simple, real-time energy exchange. The only difference is, as a writer, you're trying to imagine the person on the other side. And in that process, I think you always try to imagine them at their best. You try to imagine a reader who's a little smarter than you, a little better traveled, you know. So in that, so in a way, uh, it's a coping strategy for me. But it means that it's a very simple process, which is you get up, you read what you've done already, and you just honestly react to it. This is, I always talk about this meter, this is positive, this is negative. When the meter goes from positive to negative, you gently turn to the story and just sort of say, What's the problem? You know, and the story says there's no problem. M move along. You know, I'm, I'm, and so, in that model, when you get to these, I was writing on that party scene with all those little historical bits, and as I was reading, there was just a gap between two that seemed a little bit too much of a leap, and as I was contemplating that gap, uh, an image, an image of that party, came to mind, and I just blurted it out in there, and I liked it. And then, then you're uh, saying to yourself, can I? Is that allowed? And the answer was always, yeah, it's your stupid book. You know, you can do what you want. So, so that was kind of like a, now that's a big formal change in the mm. book, but it's prompted by pleasure. And then but the weird thing is I found if, it's, if you change something in the book to increase your enjoyment of it, it always then gives you dividends in thematics and philosophy and everything. So in this case, the fact that I was making things up meant, I think, that those scenes are more believable and more novelistic. Uh, and in a certain way, it also kind of brings up this question of the moon and you know, this kind of variability. But then after, when the book came out, there was a review on the radio in the States, and she said, I'm not sure if I believe this, but is this fake news? And, and I thought, oh, God, maybe it is. She's a really wonderful reviewer. I thought. 
But uh, then it got me thinking about, you know, the novel. And the novel actually is, um, you know, by any means necessary. You're trying to make a beautiful story by whatever method. So, yeah. Um, maybe we should, maybe I should ask you about fake news. We were, um, I was at um, uh, a lecture that your fellow uh, booker shortlistee uh, was giving couple of weeks ago, Ali Smith um, gave a lecture at Goldsmiths University um, about why the novel matters. Um, And one of the things she said was, um, there's no such thing as the historical novel, Mm. by which I think she meant um, that a novel always reflects its time. Yes. The time in which it's written. So I know you've been, you know, you were writing this book over, what, beginning sort of 2012 and presumably has a longer longer roots as well going further back um, but looking at it now can you see the events or concerns either of now or of that time bubbling up through it no well yes I mean you know at the time I was writing it I was mostly thinking about all uh, these I mean if there was any politics it was thinking about the uh, the killing of so many African-Americans by police. That was something that was, the, the fact that that particular aspect of the Civil War had not changed. I mean, it changed, but it hadn't ended. And then if you do research at that period, you just think, oh, that war actually never ended. It, it, they abolished slavery, they quit the fighting, and then instantly, or almost instantly, put in a bunch of rules in the South that were sort of like a secondhand slavery. And you know, uh, But as far as the Trump thing, I, it, uh, I was writing from that place of like, when Hillary's president, maybe I'll meet her at the White House because, you know, that, that kind of thing. And uh, so, no, except the only thing that I noticed was there was kind of a, um, you know, you, it felt to me like it was a chance to get back in touch with the country and with this historical period and realize that every time is crazy uh, and that this process of, you know, imagining one's country is, is ongoing, you know, in every country. We, we have to constantly say, well, what do, we, what do we stand for? But it felt a little academic at that point. And then the book came out in, in, uh, right after the inauguration, and it wasn't academic anymore, you know, very kind of... And it was beautiful, actually, to go and tour the book around and, and be in auditoriums with mostly young people who were just, like, you know, so upset and agitated. And somehow the book, I don't know exactly how, but the book did seem well-timed in that sense. It gave us a chance to talk about things. And, you know, in a sense, I was of, I'm of the sort of David Foster Wallace, Jonathan Franzen uh, generation. And we did a lot of talking back in that time about earnestness in fiction and irony and so on. And, uh, you know, after the events of the last year, it seems to me, and I don't know how to put it, uh, it it's, it's made me think that fiction is so vital to what human beings do. Uh, it's, not, it's not peripheral, it's actually the essential human activity. And so for me, I'm trying to struggle with this idea of humor versus earnestness, uh, you know, how, how, how straight on can it be? But I don't ever want to write a book that isn't, uh, you know, of the moment in that sense, because uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't exclude any approach from fiction. And I know when I was younger, it was, well, it's always easier to write uh, negativity, you know, to, to uh, oppress the comfortable is, is, you know, easy. The other thing, you know, to be, to sort of uh, express the positive valences of life, I think is just technically harder. Uh, but I think it's morally as important because otherwise you're getting a, quite a distorted picture of, of things. Does that make sense? It does. And, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, one or two of the ways in which Lincoln can be viewed as an 
anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So from the way he spoke to... Yeah, I mean, he, he was... Uh, one thing that Lincoln, we were talking earlier, Lincoln had a thing about never, or trying his best never to speak extemporaneously. So if he was called out, they would sometimes do a serenade and he would have to come to the balcony of the hotel. And he had these really beautiful things like... Um, uh, you know, if, if I were I to speak uh, off the top of my head, you would find nothing there, and so I must end. You know, kind of a way of getting himself out of improv, because he was really afraid that it, as president, if he said something dumb or, or uh, incorrect, it would go out and ruin the world. So we're not so worried about that anymore. Um, <laughs> And he, you know, he, he, if he spoke publicly, he, would, he always insisted on writing it and revising it extensively and so that there could be no doubt about what he meant. And in the speeches, in that incredibly fraught time with slavery, you, I mean, the, the beauty of those, those speeches, the, the micro-tuning that he did is just remarkable. So that, so that you know, uh, it goes outward. He had such respect for the office. He had such respect for the country. Uh, and throughout his presidency, in this kind of almost mythical way, he, he, uh, his his sort of tent of empathy got bigger and bigger, and it's, it went out to include people. It included the soldiers of the South, it included slaves, and it in- started to include uh, the, the, the slaves and former slaves in a very radical way. So at the end of his life, he was almost ready to give the vote, to, well, to the men, to, to the African American men. Uh, and then he, then he was killed. So that's, you know, now what's happening is the tent of empathy is getting a little tiny until it's only as big as the president. You know, the, the, I, I like everybody who's just like me, and I like everybody who likes me, and everyone else is to be excluded. So that's a complete inversion of the, in my view, of, of the Lincolnian vision of America. Lincoln in the Bardo is published by Bloomsbury. It's highly recommended. If you stay listening to this podcast, this is a sort of secret track thing, except... It's not, I haven't told Kate about this. I hope this is okay with you, Kate. It's a secret track in that it's not at all secret and I'm telling you about it now. But if you listen after the credits, you can hear George reading his personal manifesto, which is a, a, a kind of hair on the back of the neck type moment. So it's worth sticking around for. Kate, now's the moment that we celebrate a non-significant anniversary of a non-significant event. What have we got? 22 years ago, in October 1995, Coolio's Gangster's Paradise hit number one. Fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed re-immersing myself in this song yesterday. I'd forgotten about the video, which, because it was tied to the film Dangerous Minds, is basically Coolio wrapping the whole thing into Michelle Pfeiffer's face. Mm. And she just has to sit there and She's take sitting it. astride a chair, yeah. reacting, yeah. occasionally kind of curling a lip and then flouncing off and then coming back to the chair. And of course, the hero of this song really is the wonderful gospel voice of LV, which stands for? I, I don't have that information. Oh, Large Variety. You Large told Variety. Me Large His name variety. is Large Variety. He's now pushing 60. Great gospel singer. Most recent album this year, The Art of Making Love. Fantastic. And his real name is Larry Sanders. <laughs> I'm not sure about the video, but in the Top of the Pops appearance, he's wearing a, a striped, multicoloured striped cardigan and a pair of large beige slacks. I totally remember him from that Top of the Pops performance because often a sort of hip-hop troupe or artist will have a large man at the side of the stage either doing some 
bass profundo rapping or, or some gospel singing. And, and LV is like the kind of platonic ideal of that for me. <laughs> the wonderful thing about this period in music, I don't know if it was our age at this point or whether it was that you messed, you didn't necessarily kind of have the information to hand about the records, but a bit like the Fugees with Killing Me Softly, these things came out and you thought, what a wonderful song, what a fantastic tune that is, and what a lovely string arrangement. You didn't know that these were actually other people's songs and you, you didn't care. And I remember the opening lines of this, I thought, I was like, I don't know, 14, 15. And I thought, what a great line, I walked through the valley of the shadows of death. How did Coolio come up with that? <laughs> That's your non-denominational upbringing <laughs> revealing itself there. Did you know it was a Stevie Wonder song? I didn't know it was a Stevie Wonder song, no. And completely in the same way that you don't know all those songs, Bittersweet Symphony, the Fuji's songs, they're all ripping off classic mm. songs and, and benefiting from an audience who, who don't know about it. But it is, it is a good use of it. And um, if you're wondering why there is no more swearing in the song than fool, there's a couple <laughs> of fools and I think one punk. It's apparently because Stevie Wonder vetoed that. Ah, is that true? Yeah. Well... The cussing. It's not strictly verified. I haven't strictly fact-checked it, but it has been said. Oh, so, I just happened to have found a quote about that very subject. <laughs> Coolio said, I had a few vulgarities and Stevie wasn't with that, so I changed it. Once he heard it, he thought it was incredible. And I bet he did. He did. He, he, he would have loved it. And, and I have to say, it does benefit from it because it's a... It's a particularly good use of fool at the end of the, at the, end of the line. Um, so please go back to YouTube and re-immerse yourself in Gangster's Paradise. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Back Half, conducted entirely in darkness in the New Statesman bunker. We've been Tom Gatti and Kate Mossman. Tweet us at, at NS underscore podcast or me at, at Tom underscore Gatti if you want to get in touch. And please um, nominate a anniversary for us because um, it's really hard coming up with them. I mean, it takes me... I mean, I've got five-day week. I spend four days looking for the anniversary, one day doing the podcast, and then um, it's as much as I can do to recover over the weekend and, and start the whole process again. We'll be playing you out, as ever, with Godspeed by Pistol Jazz, who I dreamt last night were a German school band, aged about 15, playing on a school stage with, you know, blonde hair, rosy cheeks and brass instruments. Of course, they are not a German school band. They are a Japanese psych rock band. And this is their could-be hit, Godspeed. This is a short thing I read on the radio the other day. It's just a kind of a, uh, it's called Manifesto. And before I, thank you so much for coming. It's been a great visit here and I appreciate your uh, courtesy and your attention. Oh, this is called Manifesto. <clears throat> now it can be told. Last Thursday, my organization, PRKA, People Reluctant to Kill for an Abstraction, orchestrated an overwhelming show of force around the globe. At precisely nine in the morning, working with stealth and focus, our entire membership succeeded in simultaneously beheading no one. At 9.30, embarking upon phase two, we refrained from firing shots down into or driving a vehicle through any festive public gatherings. At 10, phase three began, during which not a single one of us blew ourselves up in a crowded marketplace. No planes were flown into buildings. No unarmed citizen was killed during a routine traffic stop. 
No migrant families were torn asunder by us during this phase of the operation. All of this was accomplished so surreptitiously it attracted little public attention. During phase four, after lunch, our group in unison failed to bulldoze a single home. The total number of wedding parties instantaneously decimated by us via drone strike during this phase was not a single one. We set on roads in every city and every nation in the world a total of zero roadside bombs, which, not being there, did not explode, killing, maiming a total of nobody. As night fell, additional operations were completed by a number of part-time members, or, as well as non-members, being considered for membership. In Boston, a bitter homophobic retired plumber whose grocery bag broke open gave a loaf of very nice bread to a balding gay man who stopped to help him. In Fresno, California, a man sitting at his computer having a malicious political exchange with a total stranger stood up, left the room, helped his wife with the dishes, and soon, standing there, they found themselves singing Mr. Bojangles. <laughs> Who are we? A word about our membership. Since the world began, we have gone about our work quietly, resisting the urge to generalize, insisting upon valuing the individual over the group, the actual over the conceptual, the small decent act over the sudden violent lunge, the complicated reality of the present moment over the theoretically euphoric future supposedly to be obtained via murder or massacre. Many of us have trouble sleeping and lie awake at night worrying about a catastrophe befalling someone we love. We rise in the morning with no plans to convert anyone via beating, humiliation, or invasion. To tell the truth, we're tired. We work. We would really like some peace and quiet. When wrong, we think about it a while, then apologize. We stand under awnings during urban thunderstorms, moved to thoughtfulness by the beautiful, troubled, umbrella-tinged faces rushing by. In moments of crisis, we pat one another awkwardly on the back, mumbling shy truisms. As we rush to an appointment, suddenly remembering a friend who has passed away, our eyes might well up with tears and we'll think, well, I was lucky just to have known her. This is us. This is who we are. This is PRKA. To those who would oppose us, I would simply say, we are many. We are worldwide, and we, in fact, outnumber you. Though you are louder, though you create a momentary ripple on the water of life, we will endure and prevail. Join us. Resistance is futile. <laughs>